Hi, and welcome to Embark, where we navigate to what's next. I'm Liz Solar, and today's guest is Stella Lupashore, a woman on a mission to humanize the workplace. Stella works with the conference board's Fortune 500 Corporation's members on rethinking their workplace strategies. She leads Reframe.Work Incorporated and consults on how to create inclusive workplaces through the use of technology, human-centered design, people analytics, and future thinking. In 2018, Stella founded Amazing Community, a nonprofit that expands the work horizon for women 45+. She has transformed the workplace at the intersection of technology, analytics, and human resources at Fidelity Investments, TIAA, IBM, Pricewaterhouse, and PwC Consulting and their clients. Welcome to Embark, Stella, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Liz, for the opportunity. It's so great to be here. Glad to have you here today. Stella, start by telling us about your work with Reframe. Absolutely. A lot of the work that I've done before was uh, in management consulting, working with organizations, helping them transform their IT infrastructure, think of a different way to improve processes or service delivery models or come up with new strategies. I'm bringing all of that experience to help organizations think about the workplace experience differently. So if you consider how consumers have been exposed to new ways of engaging with brands and consuming different tools and how easy it is to execute a transaction. All of that customer centricity created new brands and made organizations successful. The same type of thinking is needed to be brought inside the organization for the employees to feel the same way. Just think about how many times when we go to work, we get stuck in traffic by the time we get through the door and the elevator may not be working. And the, by the time we get to the uh, laptop or the computer we use, um, we forgot the password. We have to reset it. We have to uh, log into a separate system, etc. By the time we're ready to get the work done, it's already noon. Obviously, we will not be as productive maybe or as effective as we might need to be in our work environment. But if we were to bring the same type of human centricity to the employee's experience, our productivity may increase, our satisfaction with the work we do may increase, our ability to collaborate, innovate, all of that gets impacted in a positive way. And HR has a lot of opportunities to create that experience and influence it and partner with IT, partner with uh, space planning, partner with communications to bring those parties together to create that lens on how it feels like to be an employee at that company. So that's where my real uh, super power comes in because I can understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of those individuals and what are the new ways of looking at that experience and how to use technology, how to use analytics, how to think what the value that employees expect from that moment and their employers to make that experience better. So many of our interactions over the last six months are virtual. And many corporate cultures are successful because they build teams, and those are personal interactions for the most part. During COVID, with many of us working from home, we don't have that actual FaceTime. Do you think that we'll continue to meet through our monitors? And if so, how is that going to affect work relations? I think the beautiful thing about the 
COVID, the silver lining, I guess, is it created so much data as people worked remotely about the behavior patterns, about the interactions. And there are a lot of analytics tools that enable you to glean what it's that interaction look like. How uh, managers, including their team members, are they having frequent conversations? Early at the onset of the pandemic, some of those reports were quite interesting because the productivity uh, was going up. People were talking more, obviously a lot more work required a lot more interaction and orchestration. As the pandemic was progressing, there was observable type of decline in the in the productivity level. I think on one side, people kind of realized that we're in this for a long haul. And then the other thing, of course, that became very obvious, it's, it's not sustainable to have uh, daily calls or um, have to homeschool your children and then catch up on your email after working hours. It became a really taxing experience. Interactions between layers started narrowing down because the people were just primarily focusing on getting things done as opposed to trying to socialize as much. Some companies instituted happy hours and meeting-free meeting uh, days and a lot of other changes to the schedule and ways of working to enable people to catch their breath and have that uh, focus time without necessarily you know, being interrupted by different meetings or pings or notifications. It also created an acknowledgement and realization for leaders that people can be as productive as they are in the office while working remotely. People can be trusted to do the work that they are assigned to do. And we should less focus on time worked as opposed to the outcomes we produce. And I think that's a perfect example of the new ways of leading and managing in this reality that many organizations have to embrace. Back to your question, whether this is for the long haul, I people are appreciating the flexibility that they have and the fact that they don't need to commute. At the same time, they crave the human interaction. It's not the same. Zoom calls are great, but Obviously, there is a lot of uh, body movements and body signals that are missing. There are a lot of social cues that we're not able to interpret. So there will be need to have in-person interactions. However, they don't have to be on a day-in and day-out basis. They can be a choice on when people have the ability and have the need, or maybe once a week. So giving a good balance between the remote and in-person, as well as giving people a choice to to, uh, to make on what works for them. Stella, you talk about how technology will shape the world and prepare us for the future. At the same time, you talk about the humanization of the workplace. So how do technology and humanization mix when so many jobs are being automated? It's beautifully if we design it in a way that augments human capacity and amplifies the good of what we do and takes away the routine and activities and tasks that were to be automated and should have not been put in a place in the first in the first place just because it dehumanizes. I'm thinking back at the, uh, an interesting podcast I was listening about the fact that in Japan you in schools you don't have a job of a janitor. The responsibility of a janitor to clean up and everything is spread amongst the pupils and the teachers. When you think about it, it makes sense, right? If you have a job that is only about entering the data into a system, and now with the automation, you can scan and you don't need to have a human, that job maybe shouldn't have been designed in the first place, and that person can use their talents and their ability to do something much more meaningful. And if you think about how history has 
evolved, uh, we always were fearing new advancements and new innovation, right? When we were worrying about the cars taking over the, the horse buggies and uh, that created a whole new uh, infrastructure investments and skills that are needed and ability and access to new services. There's always a way to adapt to this new skill demand. And I think that's where also the human-centric design thinking is really helpful because a lot of times we fear the technology and we say, well, it's I'm not able to learn it. I'm not able to adapt. When in fact, it's really, it was poorly designed. It was designed by engineers and they assume certain people know certain ways of doing as opposed to saying, let's design it for the human who does not necessarily have the technical skills. It, just think about Apple iPhone, right? You didn't go through a deep training on how to use your iPhone. It was quite intuitively designed. So I think there is a new uh, generation of tools and technologies that will not only be able to augment the strengths of us as humans, but also design that experience in a way that does not require significant upskilling. Well, um, since you brought up human-centered design, I was going to ask you some questions about that. What exactly is it and how is it helping us? It is about putting the human that you're designing for at the center of your design. When, for example, Amazon designs their experience, they follow the person from the moment they wake up until they make that purchasing decision. And they think how they can eliminate any possible hassles that get in the way of them making that decision. So it is observing, it's looking at the, uh, at the person's experience with the technology, because many times we say, well, we'll design this tool and it's going to work this and this and this way based on what we've been trained in school. But when it actually gets consumed or used by the end user, they may have a different way of looking at the system or clicking on different things that will potentially break that originally designed path. Or they say, look, I am disabled. I, I have a hearing impediment. I cannot hear anything that you're talking about. So it, testing the design with the as broad of a variety of personas, and personas are really the canonical incarnation of the, the, the typical users of your uh, tool, will help you design a much better experience for many. And there is a so-called universal design, which is really about creating inclusive experiences for everybody. So think about ramps on the streets for people with wheelchair. Those ramps can be used by moms with babies uh, and the strollers, or they may be used by bikers or people who are on skateboards. That's an example of a universal design that is designed for an extreme population that has limitations, physical limitations, but it also provides benefit to many other users. Stella, you're an advocate for inclusion in the workplace. Um, some would take a look at corporate structure and argue that there isn't a lot of diversity or inclusion in the workplace. What are you seeing in terms of including people of color, women, trans, gay people, and differently abled people in corporate structures? It's a big area of opportunities for many organizations. And I think the systemic issues we've been exposed to because they were in existence for a long period of time, but they were perpetuated by the current practices, reward structures that an organization existed for a long period of time. And that created a disproportionate impact on uh, a lot of the minority segments. Over the summer, as we were going through this 
multiple crises at the same time, and one of them being the movements towards social and racial justice. I think there is a, a bigger acknowledgement on the urgency organizations need to put on transforming their processes, transforming their policies, giving people more opportunities. One of the best practices is to train your manager on uh, conducting interviews in a way that does not bring their own personal view and bias because they are unconsciously uh, looking at the other person, whether they are part of the in-group, are they, you know, did they go to the same school or they played the same type of sports or their kids go to the same type of clubs? So instead to pause and think differently on whether the person is qualified and shut down some of those unconscious conversations that are happening and, and uh, informing the decisions. Another one should be intentionally designing the uh, the experience and the processes to create a better pipeline and healthier pipeline. Many times, certain keywords would prevent people from applying. They will say, well, we need somebody who is a go-getter and a, uh, assertively uh, pursuing opportunities. And some of those keywords will be indicators that will possibly prevent a woman from applying because like, I don't want to be an assertive one. So for example, there are tools right now that scan through the job applications and they say, we would suggest you to change these words to make it more gender neutral or less uh, skewed towards a certain type of population. There is definitely a bigger scrutiny of the, uh, of the data and the demographic composition. So there is a lot more expectations for companies to disclose their uh, racial and, and uh, gender composition. And that in itself, I think, creates a baseline and uh, an awareness for the companies themselves saying, here's where we are. Now we know we need to do something about it. So how can we intentionally do it as well as how can we then measure the progress we're making against it? And that's really great that many companies might be realizing that, hey, we should include different types of people in our corporate structure. But at the same time, corporations are beholden to uh, a higher power, uh, their stockholders. So how do you persuade uh, an entity that has been doing things one way for a very long time and in some cases kind of like the way things are, that's really working for them, and to put different systems in place may cost them more money. Maybe they have to put more time into training uh, a more diverse workplace and changing the policies um, of, of their structure. How do you then persuade people that not only is this a good thing to do, but it's also a profitable thing to have a more inclusive workplace? There's countless of uh, research and papers out there demonstrating the uh, value of having diverse teams um, and the fact that they are actually much better managed and they have a higher success rate, uh, financially speaking. The other way, of course, is to put a little bit more rigor and there is a higher expectation from a lot of institutional investors and from the public to push companies to do a lot more disclosures uh, as far as their human capital practices. With the increase in focus on sustainability factors and advancements in the conversation around the stakeholder capitalism, um, it, it started around a year ago on August 19, uh, 181 CEOs of large organizations that are member of the business roundtable published a new purpose for the corporation and uh, elevated the stakeholder over the shareholder. <laughs> and then later in a year, Davos published something similar to that. So I think there is an, a, a growing awareness of the 
importance of creating equal opportunities, not only for the purposes of the profit, but also for the purposes of elevating the all of the stakeholders and creating value for all of them. You know, it will start with a handful of companies, but the more it becomes practiced and the more that brings evidence of positive impact, I think the more it'll be uncomfortable for those who are not joining in to, to, <laughs> to stay there where they are. There is a momentum that we're now starting to see pick up that will push companies to move into that direction. Switching gears, we can see how businesses are pivoting, especially in the light of using more technology and AI. What is higher education doing to prepare students for the workplace of the future? And if they're not doing it, how can they prepare? Schools are in an interesting space because a lot of them realized that they may not be able to provide the same type of experiences on campuses, and they'll have to adapt. Higher education was one of the last <laughs> uh, spaces and segments to transform and adapt to this new reality. They've been forced over the past few months to to really grapple with a lot of the, the issues they've chosen not to, to uh, make changes. I want to give an example of the uh, experience I have with uh, NYU. I am a adjunct faculty member there. I teach one of the courses in the Human Capital Analytics and Technology Master's Program. And first of all, it was designed to be completely online from the get-go. Secondly, it was something that traditionally was not part of HR curriculum. So we intentionally wanted to develop students to be uh, fluent in using and adopting and helping organizations implement technology, as well as analytics. So that's traditionally not HR fields and spaces. And we designed a whole new master's program for that. And one of the course that I was teaching is digital workplace design. So how can you as an HR professional think differently about the workplace experience, about the tools and techniques that you have at your disposal to make a better workplace experience? It's probably one of the first of such courses, but I think a lot of companies are going to realize the need to train um, HR practitioners with these new skills and adapt their thinking to the demands of the modern workplace. The next opportunity for HR is to step into the workplace experience space and become that leading force behind. Tell us about your work with Amazing Community. Uh, you founded this nonprofit to serve how shall I say this, women of a certain age, what skills or support does this community offer and how did you get into it? The, the way it started was uh, one of those moments of serendipity. I was doing some research and I ran across an article that was stating that half of the long-term unemployment in the U.S. are women between 55 and 65. And that felt so viscerally personal. At that time, I was still 45. I was like, oh my gosh, I have 10 years to do something about it. This is, this is, this is big. I thought I'll just run a job fair, raise awareness and solve the problem. And of course, the more you start digging into this issue, you realize how big of a systemic uh, issue it is. And a lot of it stems from some of those policies, the way it's designed by HR, all the good positive reasons that women and choices women make along their lifetime, which is, you know, staying home with the children or not saying yes to that promotion just because they are supporting their spouse career or not accepting relocation just because they are not uh, willing to move their families. So all of those decisions that helped 
families stay stable come and bite women later in life. And if you think about how a, a, a successful profile for a new hire will be assessed, a woman over 50 with a bunch of career gaps, with a bunch of pivots, will never make it into the top five for, for the applications. So it, it became obvious that there are systemic issues at the, at the societal level that assumes what's appropriate for women, what's not appropriate, especially as they get older. There is at the corporate level changes that need to be made for women to be appreciated and included and given a chance or retained. Um, and then there is personal level, right? Women sometimes uh, may not necessarily see for them a pathways to move forward. They've known and they've done certain types of occupations all their lives, and they they are trying to get back into the same as opposed to saying, where is the world going and how can I transfer my strengths to those new spaces so then I can be more marketable, I can be more compelling to hiring managers. And what we're trying to, to do is create that awareness, raise awareness, but more importantly, become that community of supportive women who help each other understand where the world is going. What are the new innovations that are happening? How can we influence some of those um, new products that are coming out to make them more accessible? Right? We are really trying to address the space at the intersection of age, gender, and technology. And it's not us as a, a amazing community nonprofit doing something to them. It's us doing it together. <laughs> so we have uh, cohort-driven courses that we want to take together to learn about new things and actions, take actions together and keep each other accountable. We also are forming partnerships with different organizations. So for example, we announced last week the partnership with BrainStation, which provides technical education to women and they give deep discounts to the members of our community. We also partner, uh, we'll announce later in September partnership with Matheson that intentionally places, uh, candidates from minorities and underserved communities into organizations that are hiring specifically tar targeting those communities. And then later in the fall, we will, um, and announced a partnership with a Voice, which is a subsidiary of the National Institute for Innovation for Aging at Newcastle University in the UK. And through that partnership, we'll engage organizations and brands in helping uh, to validate their products and assess and get feedback from women in our community, because it's so important to to provide that feedback. And that brings me back to that human-centered design thinking, right? When you create a persona that will typically be, uh, I don't know, somebody in uh, affluent community, 30 years of uh, age, then you'll have a focus group and validate something and then put that tool to the market. And the more inclusive companies can be in their market uh, research and include women over 45, people with disabilities, people who are... Uh, don't have access to a high-speed internet, the better their offerings are going to be and will provide a more inclusive uh, society for everybody and access to them. So if you raise one population, you end up raising all. How do you see the workplace behaving and looking in five years or 10 years? Oh, I, I am so excited about it. And um, I am using as a case study for my students, uh, a scenario where 
we're going to Mars and HR has the responsibility to create the workplace of the future that is compelling to anyone who may want to go there. And I know that sounds kind of too futuristic, but if you think about the timeline, right, we have NASA declaring that they are going to put person on the moon to stay by 2024. Okay, it may happen 2025, who knows, but it's not that far away. If you think about the opportunities that we are now looking at um, through technology, through uh, through artificial intelligence, through uh, different exoskeletons, bionic amplifications that humans have, um, I, there is so much ahead for us as humans uh, that will create a life that it's much easier and much much better built around us um, as individuals, as opposed to being the cog in a wheel. I think the challenge and the opportunity we have right now is to make sure that design is done in a way that does not dehumanize us, right? How can we ensure that AI is trained on a data that it's diverse enough and gives you the right type of suggestions? Uh, how can we make sure that the privacy and the autonomy of us and agency of humans is not thwarted? How can we make sure that we uh, our data is used for the goodness, not just to sell us or to uh, to uh, use our data against us. So there is a lot of opportunities to shape that in a good way, but a lot of unknowns that we need to wrestle and work through to make it in a way that uh, helps us all become better. And really, those, those are the questions, especially as we venture into uh, yet another new frontier of digitization and AI. This has been a really fascinating conversation, and um, I'm pretty sure other people will be interested in your work. How can they find out more about the work that you do, and how can they connect? I am uh, on LinkedIn, Stella Lupushor. I am available. Uh, uh, you can find me through my website, which is reframe.work. And you can write me an email, Stella was one L at reframe.org. Stella, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Um, continue the great work, and we look forward to hearing you in the future. I hope so, too. Thank you so much, Liz, for the opportunity to speak. This is so exciting to uh, share and as well as bring hope to people. Um, humans are going to prevail. We've, we've done this over and over again, and we'll do it again for sure. And those are great words and a great sentiment to end on, Stella. Let's keep hope alive. Yay, humans. And in this ever-changing world, in this ever-changing time, if you have a personal story of change or you have some news about developments, innovations in the worlds of science, business, policy, culture, art, entertainment, bring them on. We want to hear them. Just send them to Liz at EmbarkThePodcast.com. That's Liz at E-M-B-A-R-K, thepodcast.com. Have a great week. And in the meantime, thanks for listening.